You know, earlier this month was a very important holiday. It's called National Donut Day. Anybody celebrate National Donut Day on June 2nd? We could probably have a pretty lengthy, heated discussion as to who has the best donuts in Syracuse. Some people might say Geddes Bakery. Some people might say Harrison Bakery. Some people are loyal to Wegmans. My girls and I, actually, this past week, on one of their last days of school, as a little, as a little prize, we went to a place in Phoenix called Just Donuts. Anyone ever been to Just Donuts in Phoenix? It's gourmet donuts. You can make your own donut. They have a buffalo chicken wing donut. And uh, actually, the owner is a neighbor of my mom's, and her husband is a uh, is a county sheriff, and he actually was here this past Wednesday night talking to our young boys and young girls about what police officers do, and they got to sit in his car and all that fun stuff, but we went to Just Donuts. Uh, there's also a donut stand at the farmer's market that we really like because it's very fresh, and it's like a little fry cake, and it's covered in sugar, but there's all different kinds of donuts. Probably about 12 to 15 years ago, this donut company named Krispy Kreme kind of came on the scene. And it was all the rage. I mean, people were driving miles and miles to get Krispy Kreme donuts. And we desperately wanted one in Syracuse. Rochester had one first, and I know we wanted one in Syracuse. I like Krispy Kremes. I, like, I just like their glazed donuts. I like to call them God's Cheerios. I mean, that's, to me, that's, that's, that's what those things are. And uh, we got one in Syracuse. And by the way, no one went there, and it closed. So we had our chance. Um, but we, years ago, there was one in Henrietta, and still there, I think. And probably about 12 years ago, we decided as a youth group to do a fundraiser. Because people were, were traveling to buy these, and we thought, why don't we go get them and bring them to Syracuse, and they'll sell like crazy. And sure enough, when we did this, we sold out. And so it was a Saturday morning. I got up very early, and I drove to Rochester in the church van, and they loaded, I believe, 400 dozen donuts into the back of the van. And I got in the van, I got back on the three-way, and I started to head home because there were kids waiting to sell. We had, we had reserved space in front of Walmarts and Targets, and we were even going to go through neighborhoods and sell these boxes of donuts to raise funds for a trip. It was a beautiful, beautiful Saturday morning, and I'm just cruising down the three-way. I got the windows down. I got the radio up. I mean, how can you not be happy with 400 dozen donuts in the back of your vehicle? And uh, as I'm cruising along, I'm just kind of paying attention to the clock, thinking, all right, they're waiting for me. We're supposed to start selling at 10 a.m. We're going to get I'm thinking it's working out perfectly, perfectly. And I'm just about to Syracuse. Spent about an hour and 15 minutes. I'm thinking, I got it just about... I got just about beat to Syracuse, and I see this sign. <laughs> Buffalo, an all-America city. I can't tell you what that felt like on the inside. <laughs> my heart sank. My stomach was in knots. I had gone the wrong way on the throughway for an hour and 15 minutes and all these kids are waiting for the donuts and we got to sell them and now it's going to take me almost three hours to get all the way back to Syracuse and I was just and I remember as soon as I saw it I thought no how is this possible and I got off the very next exit and I turned around and I kept asking myself how did I miss all the signs how was I you know I went to college in Rochester so I drove from Rochester to Syracuse hundreds of times. I know the path well. How could I have missed all the signs? How did I not realize I didn't pass the Waterloo outlets? I mean, that's the halfway point, right? 
How did I miss all the signs? How did I go the wrong way? Well, in life, how do we know that we're going the wrong way? How do we know? What are the signs? And what about when we miss the signs? You know, the entire book of Judges, we're finishing up our series this morning called Broken Heroes. The entire book of Judges can be summarized this way. It's the story of the people of God going the wrong way. It's the people of God going the wrong way, ignoring all the signs. And when we get to the last five chapters of the book, which we're going to kind of skim over this morning, chapter 17 to 21, we discover story after story filled with outrageous religious moral, and social corruption. I mean, the worst stories in all of the Bible are in these five chapters. I want to I just kind of give you a 30,000 feet air, in the air view of the, these last five chapters. And I just, you may want to look away. You may want to cover your ears at times. You may want to cringe because these are bad stories. And instead of diving deep into any one of them because of the intensity of them, I want to just kind of go over the top of them so you can get a sense of here's Israel going in the wrong direction. In chapter 17 and 18, we meet a man and his name is Micah. And Micah steals a large amount of money from his own mom. So there's a bad start. Well, his mom, once she realizes the money has been stolen from her, she calls down a curse on the thief, not knowing it's her son. And her son overhears her call down the curse. And because he is superstitious and he's concerned about the power of this parental curse, he comes back to his mom and he admits, I'm the one who took the money. I'm so sorry. Here it is. Here's, here's all the money back. She takes it back. And without any further conversation, she reverts the curse to a blessing. And she blesses him. And then she says to him, Micah, why did you take my money? And Micah says, well, I had this idea. I want to build a shrine. And uh, I wanted to build a place of worship. And so she actually takes some of the money and does what he wanted to do with it. And she builds this thing which they are considering a place of worship to God, the true God, a place of worship to Jehovah, to Yahweh, but they also build idols. So it's a place of worship to God, but it's filled with idols. Well, Micah Micah needs a priest because you can't have a place of worship without a priest. And so he unlawfully makes his son the priest and his son's not a Levite. So it's against the law. And then... Later, he actually does find a Levite who happens to be traveling by, and he hires him on. He gives him a salary and says, if you'll be my priest, then then I'll pay you money. So Micah ends up with this Levite as his priest in his ungodly place of worship. Well, eventually, an entire tribe named Dan hears about this. And Dan is the one tribe that basically has no land at this point. They're stuck up in the hills. They're looking for land. And they hear about this, and they come, and they find this priest, this unlawful, ungodly priest. Even though he's a Levite, he shouldn't have been doing what he was doing. And they steal him away from Micah. So they grab him. They grab all this stuff. He's made all this false worship stuff. He's made an ephod. They've made idols. So Dan takes this priest, his name is Jonathan, and steals him away. Well, Micah runs after the tribe of Dan and says, you stole my priest. You stole my stuff. And the tribe of Dan basically says, you better leave us alone or else we'll kill you and your entire family. And then Dan, at the guidance of this priest, who does not hear from God, by the way, they decide to attack and overrun a peaceful people in the land of Laish, a peaceful people that they have not been commanded to attack, a peaceful people who cannot defend themselves. They basically just go in and overrun these people and they take their land over. And that's how chapter 18 ends. Dan, in a land that didn't belong to him, wasn't promised to him, and he took from a very peaceful people at the direction of a priest 
who does not hear from God. Chapters 19 through 21 gets worse. Now we meet a Levite who has no name, and he's chasing after a woman. It's an it's a unfaithful concubine. So a concubine was not a wife, but there was an official relationship. He's chasing after an unfaithful concubine. He finds her at her father's house. He ends up working out a deal to get her back, and he takes her, and they head home. Well, on their way back home, they need to stay somewhere overnight, and they end up in an inhospitable town named Gabeah. And in Gabeah, which is part of the tribe of Benjamin, at first they can't find anybody who will take them in, which is totally against that culture and against the religion of that day. They should have been, there should have been people throwing, up the, throwing open the doors of their homes to say, come on in. They're sitting in the town square. They can't find anybody. And an old man walks by and says, believe me, you do not want to spend the night in this town square. Which, like, if this was a movie, that's where the, you know, the music would creep in. It's like, you know, dangerous-sounding music. Ominous. So the old man opens up the doors. He brings in this Levite and his concubine. It's not very long before the men of the town come to the house and begin banging on the door. And it's like the scene from Genesis in Sodom and Gomorrah where the men say, send that Levite out so we can do terrible crimes against him. And what happens is the Levite actually sends out his concubine in this place. In fact, in the Hebrew, it says he shoved her out the door. He pushes her out to protect himself. And what ensues is what you would expect, a terrible night of abuse and misuse. And in the end, in the morning, when he comes out the door and his concubine is there, she's dead. He puts her on his donkey or horse or whatever, brings her back to where he lives. And this is where you may want to cover your eyes, close your ears. He dismembers her and sends a piece of her to all 12 of the tribes. It's his attempt to rally support against this village. And sure enough, you know, you open your mail and there, you know, obviously it evokes a strong response. And so all of Israel comes together and says, we need to learn more about what happened that night. And so they come together and the Levite stands up and says, here's what happened. He tells his version of the story. And so they get very angry and they say to Benjamin, Benjamin, listen, now remember these tribes were brothers. They're originally brothers. They say, listen, little brother, you got to give us those men. You got to give us that village. They need to be destroyed. And Benjamin says, we're not giving it up. We're not giving them up. And so what ensues is a three-day battle, civil war, for the first time in the history of the people of God, civil war between 11 of the brothers and Benjamin. And the cost is 40,000 Israelites are killed. And in Benjamin's tribe, they go from 26,000 men to 600 men, and not a single woman or child is left. The people of, the people of Israel grieve this because they realize there's only 600 men, there's no women. This tribe cannot survive. They're going to be extinct in the next, extinct in the next 50 to 60 years. And it's an interesting scene because they cry and they grieve it. And it's like, you're responsible for it. Like, you're the one who did it. They can't even see their own part in it. They're grieving this result that, that, that there's only 600 men left. And they also, by the way, had made a vow that they would not give any of their daughters in marriage to those men. So what are they going to do? And what ends up happening at the very end of this book is that Israel finds a loophole in the vow. They manipulate the law to fix the problem they create. And what they end up actually turning to is they kidnap and they turn to kidnapping and human trafficking. That's really what happens at the very end of the book. They kidnap women, they traffic them so that these 600 men can have wives and their tribe can survive. And then the book ends. They are going the wrong way. They're going the wrong way. This morning, as we kind of look at these stories, I want to 
offer you four signs that you and I are going the wrong way. Four signs. I think in your bulletin there was a, a handout. If you like to take notes, we provided that for you this morning. You can fill in. But four signs from these stories that we see that you and I are going the wrong way. And the first one is simply this. You know you're going the wrong way if you approach God on your own terms. If you are approaching God on your own terms. Now remember we said Micah stole money from his mother in chapter 17, and then she curses the thief. And then let's just look closely at these verses, verses 3 through 6. It says, So Micah restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord for my hand, for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. She's dedicating it to the Lord to make idols. Now, therefore, I will restore to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That phrase is repeated in some format four times in these five chapters. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What's happening here is that Micah is saying, I'm going to approach God on my terms. I'm going to worship God, but it's going to be in my house, not where I'm supposed to go. I'm going to worship God, but it's going to be convenient for me. It's going to be easy for me. And it's going to be a combination of God and other idols. I'm I'm saying that I'm choosing God, but my heart is actually set on other idols. One of the most helpful, but also most discouraging things that has happened recently in restaurants is they have added the calorie counts on their menus next to their entrees. It's helpful, but it's discouraging. (laughs) And uh, recently I was with some friends and we went over to the movie tavern in Camillus to see a movie and they gave us the menu and we were looking through and at all the calorie counts. And I'm trying to uh, count calories a little bit for obvious reasons. And um, I look through and everything's like 1,500 calories, 2,400 calories. I mean, that's like, that's a whole day's worth of eating. And I found one entree that was 800 calories. It was the black bean burger. Now, as a general rule of life, I would never order that. In fact, I think it's an insult to call it a burger. It should be called something else. But I was hungry, and I wanted to watch my calories, so I ordered this black bean burger, and it came to me. It actually wasn't terrible, but I'm sitting there, and I'm eating it, and the person next to me has the game day platter. And the game day platter has sliders with real beef, chicken wings, loaded fries, And so I'm watching the movie and I'm eating my black bean burger, but the whole time I'm eating my black bean burger, I'm staring at these chicken wings. (laughs) I'm trying to like just, I'm trying to imagine that this is a chicken wing I'm eating. This is a chicken wing I'm eating. I had made my choice, but my heart, my stomach, my eyes were over here. And here's what Micah is doing. He's saying, God, I've chosen to build a place of worship to you, but my heart belongs to these idols. And so it's this, it's, we've seen this again and again, haven't we, in this book? It's this syncretism. It's this pluralism. It's this bringing together of worshiping God and worshiping others. Now, we might say, what does that have to do with us? The truth is, is I think every Christian battles with the difference between confessional belief, what I say I believe, what I sing, and functional belief, how I actually live, right? So we sing songs and we say things like, God, I trust in you alone. But then when we're struggling with finances, 
we start trusting in other things when we have relationship issues. So confessionally, we say, God, I trust you alone, but functionally, we also trust in other things. And we know this is happening because we lose our joy and our peace so easily. Does anybody else struggle with this? That through the course of your week, there's times where you lose your joy. It just can't be found. You lose your peace. Maybe it's a bad day at work that causes you to do so. Maybe it's a difficult conversation, financial difficulties, health issues, relationship challenges. Maybe you feel like you haven't been treated the right way and it's stolen your joy. Maybe you're not getting your way in some situation. And whenever we lose our joy or our peace, it's an indicator that your, our very sense of value and worth is at stake. In other words, it's our identity. And so we approach God on our own terms. We say, I'll take you as my God, but I also kind of want these things too. I also trust in these. I also find a lot of joy and peace in these things. In other words, we're saying to God, God, you're my identity, but this is my identity too. God, you're my identity, but being a well-paid, uh, successful career person is my identity also. You're my identity, but having the perfect family is also my identity. You're my identity, but being seen as smart or respectable, or whatever. That's also my identity. And so we're trying to approach God on our own terms. Now, eventually, Micah does hire an actual Levite. Look at this verse. He hires one, and then in 1713, Micah says, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. And in this verse, he exposes the very motivation of his heart. He's not doing these things because he loves God. He's doing it because he wants God to bless him. Now I know God will bless me because I got the real deal. I got a real Levite. And this is approaching God on your own terms also. This is worship as a means to an end. This is saying to God, God, I do this for you and you do this for me. Shake hands. We want that sort of deal. God, I serve you all the days of my life and you make sure that my life goes good. I've followed all the rules, God, so now you have to honor me. And this is the very heart of dead religion, which is simply says this, God, you owe me. I've been so good, I've been holy, I've been faithful, I give him my money, I serve in ministry, I show up at church, I don't say those words anymore, I don't watch those movies anymore, here's a whole impressive list of things that I am, here's all a list of things that I am not, and so now, God, you will surely bless me now. And this is approaching God on your own terms. We love and worship and serve God simply because of who he is, because of who he is. Does he bless us? Yes, he loves to bless his children. He delights to bless his children. But if your motivation for serving God is to secure a blessing for yourself, do you know who you really love most? Yourself. What affects this one family ends up affecting an entire tribe. The corruption spreads from Micah's house to the entire tribe of Dan. Dan makes three mistakes. They first take the priest, big mistake. Secondly, they take his word as God's word. Big mistake, he's a false prophet. And number three, they interpret success as God's blessing. They succeed. They defeat the people in Laish. But the reason they defeat them is because those people are people of peace. They don't fight. They basically just went in and ran. It was just a genocide. That's all it really was. But they interpret their success as God's blessing on them. It's a, good, it's a little warning for us. Life may be going well. We may be succeeding in different ways. Don't automatically interpret that as God's pleasure with you. Sometimes we simply succeed because that's just the rules of life. That's just how things work. But we need to hear from God in a way that really distinguishes, is my life, is my offering pleasing to you? So number one, we approach God on our own terms. Number two, here's another sign that you're going the wrong way. You devalue and dehumanize others. 
You devalue and dehumanize other people. As we move into the last three chapters of this book, something really interesting happens, and it'd be easy to miss, but it's this. Nobody, nobody for the next three chapters gets a name. There's no more names assigned, which is very unusual. Everybody else in Judges has had a name. Even in the previous stories, there was Micah, and there was the priest Jonathan, and there was the tribe of Dan. But now we come to the last three chapters of Judges, and we have a Levite who has no name. And the namelessness of the characters reflects the dehumanization of the individuals. This is what's happening in these last three chapters. One of the commentaries I read said this, to have a name is to be somebody, to have identity. And since names are given and used by others, to have a name is to have significance within your community. So this lack of use of name is not because Samuel was like, "Ah, I don't know their names. He's trying to communicate something. That by the end of this book, people are being dehumanized. They're being devalued. He doesn't even use their names anymore. The Levite in this chapter has no name. And the reason why is because to the men of that town, he's not a human. He's just an object of lust. The concubine has no name. Why? Because she's used by the Levite to protect himself. She's used by the townspeople. And then she's used a third time to rally people to exact his revenge on this village. No names simply because they aren't being seen as humans anymore. They're not being seen as people. They're being seen as things. They're being devalued and dehumanized. Well, surely we're better than these people, right? I mean, surely we don't. We don't do this stuff. We don't devalue people or dehumanize people. I would suggest we do it all the time, even in little ways we don't notice. All the time. Now, you know, if you go out to a restaurant for lunch after service today and you sit down and the waiter or waitress comes up to your table and begins to introduce him or herself, I don't know about you, but I have an immediate way of evaluating how valuable that waiter is me. And here's some of the questions I would ask during my meal and after my meal. Um, Can he fill my cup when it's empty? You know, that's one of their jobs is to anticipate my needs. My cup, I'm shaking my cup. There's ice in here. It's it's empty. And I drink, I drink a lot of water when I eat food. And so that always drives me crazy. And so sometimes I say that was a terrible waiter because he didn't fill my cup with water. It was, it was empty all the time. Does she bring my food out in a timely fashion? Can he answer all my questions about the menu? Does she make the right conversation? Does he compliment my choices? Oh, sir, what a wonderful choice you've made. Does she anticipate my every need? Uh, This is kind of a lighthearted, silly example, but what we do is we look at a human being, a waiter or waitress, and we we determine their value based on their ability to meet our needs over, over a meal. And you've done it. I've done it, right? You've had bad waiters, haven't you? Bad waitresses. And you walk out and you, don't, you tip them less or you, or you don't tip them or you walk out and you're grumbling under your breath because they're not valuable to you. So we do this all the time. We do this with athletes. When you win, I'm with you. When you lose, I, I send angry tweets at you and, and post on Facebook about you. To, 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 to musicians, when you are putting out great new music, you're the best. But if you haven't released a good album in years, I, I hate you. Uh, you know, doctors, as long as you're fixing my health issues and doing what I need, then I'm with you. But as soon as you can't figure it out, I'm, I'm against you. The government, do everything the way I want and forget about what everyone else wants. Just what I want. And so we devalue and we dehum- dehumanize people whenever we see someone only for what they can do for us. And we do it all the time. Only what you can do for my happiness, my pleasure, to advance my agenda, to fulfill my purpose, to meet my goals. What can you do for me? 
And the truth is, it's not just with strangers. We actually do it with people that we love. Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers. You're only as good to me as what you can do for me. But the problem with this is that the story of the Bible, specifically the story of creation in the Bible, teaches us that every human being has been created in in the image of God. And that there is an inherent dignity and worth in every human being apart from a single decision they make for the rest of their lives. Inherent dignity and worth in every human being that can never be taken from them because they've been created in the image of God. Inherent dignity and worth in every human being apart from their ability to do something. What that means for us this morning is this. You and I have never seen or met a single person who isn't an image bearer. You've never met a single person who doesn't bear the image of the God that you love and that you serve. That we have inherent value, worth, apart from our ability to contribute to society. There are some people who would say, if this person's going to be born and they can't contribute to society, they have less value and worth than somebody else. And the Bible says something very differently about that. Your value and worth is actually not determined by your ability to ability to contribute to society, although if we have the gifts and ability to do so, we should. That's not what determines our value and worth. What determines your value and worth is that you were birthed in the mind of God and that he breathed his life into you and he stamped his image upon you. Yes, his image in all of us is effaced and affected and messed up now. That's the fall, but it's still there. And someday the image is going to resurface fully and perfectly. We devalue and we dehumanize people when we categorize people and we remain at a distance from those people. I think we do this all the time. I think in this day and age, it's harder than ever to have healthy conversations with people who are different than you. Have you noticed that? Very hard to navigate different opinions because everybody starts to start yelling and screaming at each other and posting on each other's pages. We categorize people based on things like simply like where they live. I experience this. When I travel around the country and speak at different conferences, as soon as I say I'm from New York, you've experienced this probably, what does everybody think? You're going to rob me later. Like, that's what they they all think. They all clutch to their purses and their wallets because they think I'm from New York City and they envision tall buildings and taxi cabs. And so I've learned now to say, I'm from upstate New York, pretty much like where you live. I'm from upstate New York. We categorize people based on how they dress, their religion, their race, their politics, their lifestyle, any way in which they are different from us. We, we see something about somebody online or we hear something about somebody and we automatically pick them up and drop them in this bucket with everybody else who's just like them and not like us. You know, I like to say to people when they start ranting and raving about a category of persons based maybe on how they vote or their lifestyle or the choices that they've made, I like to ask them, hey, do you have any, do you have any friends do you have any friends that, that are like that? Is there anyone like that, anyone in that category that you would consider a close friend? And sometimes I hear this response. Why would I be friends with that type of person? And when I hear that, you know what I think? So far from the heart of Jesus. So far from the heart of Jesus. You know what Jesus was consistently accused of? Not of being pious, not of being overly righteous, not of going to church too much, not of being conservative, not of being liberal. He was accused of being a friend of sinners. Could we as a people, both individually and a church, if Trinity could be accused of one thing, let's be accused of being a friend of sinners. We're friends of sinners. That's, that's who we are. 
That's what we do. And as soon as you start saying, why would I be friend with someone like that? I have nothing in common with them. I have no interest. We would just fight and argue. Well, then you've missed the heart of the God who was a friend to you when you were still his enemy. The third sign that you're going the wrong way is this. You are bold toward the sins of others, but blind toward your own. You are bold toward the sins of others, but you're blind toward your own. After this terrible night happens, and he, he does what he does, all the tribes of Israel come together. They want to hear about this. They all gather together. And he gets his moment. This nameless Levite stands up. Let's, look, let's actually look at this. In Judges chapter 20, it says this beginning in verse 3. The people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah, that belongs to Benjamin. I am my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. Now, a couple things about his version of the story, and this is truly his version of the story. First, he says, they came to the house to kill me. That's not true. They came to the house to commit a terrible crime against him, but they did not come to kill him. And then he totally leaves out his part in the story. He makes himself sound helpless. I couldn't have done anything. I fought them off as best I could, but there was too many of them. That's not what happened. He threw her out. So here he is using this terrible crime to rally support for vengeance upon these men. Now, did these men deserve to be punished? Of course they did. But the point is simply this. He totally did not recognize or own up to his responsibility in this story. He was bold towards the sins of the men of the town, which he should have been, but he was blind to his responsibility. He was blind to his own. In other words, he made sure that he came out of this looking as clean as possible looking as virtuous as possible. One of my concerns as the church is that we've become professionals at calling other people's sins out, but we're blind to our own. And we stand on our soapboxes and we stand on street corners and we yell into our megaphones and we say, look at what you're doing. You're so bad. You're so evil. The world's never been this evil before. You're so sinful. God is going to judge you. God is angry with you. And we yell and yell and yell at people to stop. And the irony is, is that we're asking people who are not converted to act like they're converted. They can't do it. Their lives have not been converted by the spirit. So we're telling unconverted people to live like they're converted when we have churches filled with converted people who can't live like they're converted. And so bold towards other sins, but we're blind to our own self-righteousness. You know, the fact that we feel like we're more righteous than them because we're not like them, because we're, we're better than them. We're blind to our own lack of generosity. We're supposed to be generous towards people who are different than us. We're blind to our own hospitality, that we haven't thrown open the doors of our homes to welcome people in who are not like us. We're blind to our own self-reliance and self-dependence. And just the fact that we're yelling at them means that we're simply too far away. If you have to yell at someone about their sins, you're too far away from them. You're not living incarnationally like Jesus did. You're not coming and living amongst them and with them. You know, Jesus talked about this actually in Matthew chapter 7. This is a very familiar passage. Let me read it to you. In verse 3, Jesus said this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. 
you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's the problem with sin. It blinds us to our sin. So why can't this person in this example see the log in their own eye? It's a really easy answer. Because there's a log in their eye. (laughs) They can't see the log in their eye because there's a log in their eye. You can't see your own sin because of your own sin. And when Jesus says this log or this plank, when you study this in the Greek, it's actually the sort of beam that entire house would have been built on. So it was a a large beam that you would have put across the top of a roof, really something that would be really significant and large and really central to the stability of that house. So when Jesus says, you got a log in your eye, he's saying to them, the whole foundation of your relationship with me is wrong. Yeah, they they got stuff. Everybody's got speck in their eyes. You got a log in your eye. And the clearest evidence, one of the clearest evidences, I think Jesus is saying here, that you've got a log in your eye, that you're going the wrong way, that you're on the wrong foundation, is that you are bold toward the sins of others, but you're blind toward your own. We love to judge people who sin differently than us, who have different struggles and issues than us, but at the end of the day, ask yourself this, whose sin bothers me more, my own or that person's? And to be a Christian means that you're more broken by your own sin You're more humbled by your own sin than you are concerned with other people's sins. So the last thing this morning, the fourth sign that you are heading in the wrong direction is simply this. You spend more energy on division than mission. You spend more energy on division than mission. The great tragedy of the book of Judges is this. At the beginning, I don't expect you to remember all the way back nine weeks ago, But at the beginning in Judges chapter 1, this is how it starts. God says to the people of Israel, go possess the land. Go take the land. Go fight. And Judges chapter 1 is the story of nine of the 12 tribes basically doing it. They're not perfect, but they're doing it. So Judges begins with them fighting the enemy. And how does Judges end? Fighting themselves. Civil war. They were given a mission. And over the course of 21 chapters, it turned into division where now they're killing and slaughtering their own brothers. At the beginning, they're instructed by God to not intermarry with the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and and the Midianites because it's going to lead to idolatry. But at the end of Judges, they're refusing to intermarry with each other. We're not giving our wives to Benjamin's people. See how this has changed? They, They shared a mission, but by the end, it's become division. One of my good friends was, is a captain or was a captain with the Marines. He served two tours of combat, one in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. And one time I was working on a book and I, I asked him if I could interview him. I wanted some stories. And he told me a little bit about what life was like over there uh, leading these, these, uh, these men and women. And uh, he talked about how when they were on missions, they would be given specific missions. Okay, you go and clear out this path because we have an important meeting with the local town leader. So you guys are going to go as kind of to, to survey everything. And he, would, he said when they were on mission, the focus of these young men was remarkable. You could not have distracted them with anything. They knew what they were there to do. They were so focused. They were so disciplined. They had a clear mission. Everybody did what they were asked to do. But then there were seasons over there where there was really nothing to do or downtime. And he said it was like two totally different groups of young men. When they had a mission, focused, determined, disciplined. When they didn't have a mission, crazy stuff. 
I mean, bored out of their minds, so doing weird things to each other and, and, and crazy things and playing strange games and taking random insects out of the desert and putting them in these little containers and making them fight each other and just like doing things to pass the time. And one, one story that he, he told me was they had a, um, they had a lounge area like a, a, with, a, with a big TV where they could watch sports and, and television shows and they were all gathered together one night in that lounge area to watch a game and right about when the game was going to start, one of the commanding officers came in and said, we need, we need the HDMI cable that's connecting the TV. The reason we need it is because we're getting ins- very important instructions right now from someone else about what our mission is. And we need the HDMI cable in this other tent to connect this to this. My first thought is, all the money we spend on the military, get him another HDMI cable. <laughs> but secondly, uh, so he takes the HDMI cable, and the room is upset, of course, and like trying to argue with him, and he goes off to, well, one guy so flips his lid that he trashes the entire lounge. He's so angry, he's throwing things everywhere, he's smashing the TV, and I'm thinking, talk about losing sight of the mission. They need that cable to get instructions for the mission, the reason that you're there. And he's all distracted because he doesn't get to watch, you know, his show that night. Now, I know we would think, well, we don't, we don't deal with those sort of things. But, you know, I've talked with pastors who have led churches that have grown. You know, as a church grows, you know what happens? They've had, they've had long-time, regular, faithful attendees walk up to them and go, Pastor, two things. doesn't feel like my church anymore because I don't know everybody here. And number two, some visitor sat in my seat. <laughs> they sat in my seat, and are you going to tell them, or am I going to tell them? And they're not joking. They're not kidding. They're not messing around. Why? They don't understand the mission. They've lost sight of the mission. And so now they're arguing about the color of the carpet and the temperature in the room and the things on the walls and the seats where they sit. And you know what? I, you know what my prayer is? That God would take every single one of your seats away from you. Every single one of you would lose the seat you're sitting in right now to somebody who needs Jesus. That's the heart that we should have as the people of God on the mission of God. God, send someone in to steal my seat from me not protect my seed. Who cares about your seed? It's about the mission. It's not about division. But in the church, sometimes you get this. We don't get, we don't really get it here, or certainly not as much, or I don't, I'm not aware of it if it's here, but this infighting and this drama of people being in each other's businesses and people wanting things their own way. And when, when people in the church are, are all busy, worried about each other and in each other's business and wanting things their own way, you know what I want to say to them is you should be so busy loving your neighbors, you don't have any time to even care about that stuff. You should be exhausted from, from living on mission for God that by the time you hear about that, you're like, who cares about Who cares about that? That's their business. That's not my business. I'm too busy trying to tell people that Jesus loves them and that he died for them and that he has a plan for their life. You know, when, it's, when, it, when disunity comes, you often see people fighting. But what I'm wondering is, where are the people who will fight for unity and that's what we need to fight for. Fight for unity, common mind, common heart, common mission. So that's the fourth sign that you're heading in the wrong direction. We're more focused on division than mission. And the book ends with this haunting verse. It comes up again. The last verse of Judges 21:25. It simply says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. And Judges ends. And we're left longing for a king. We are. I mean, commentators say the whole book of Judges was written to really defend David and his kingship. 
that it was written to show to people in the midst of David's kingship when things weren't great. Hey, I know things aren't perfect, but there was a day when there was no king. And this is what it looked like. And so by the time the reader gets to the end of the Judges, the, the desired impact is this. God, we need a king. And there's a, there's a slight light, ray of light, slight hope in this last verse because it says, in those days, there is no king. But what that means is God was not always going to leave his people without a king. And sure enough, the next book in the Bible is Samuel. And Samuel is a priest, and Samuel eventually appoints Saul to be the first king of Israel. If you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, you'll realize that the kings actually aren't much better than the judges. And so it's, there's no real solution here. No human being can fix other human beings. No human being can solve other human beings. But in the midst of David's rule, God promises something to David. I want to read this to you as we close. The promise of a king in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says this, verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. That's the whole story of Judges. They're not planted in a place. They're always being disturbed, but God's promising, someday I'm gonna plant you and you'll be disturbed no more. And violent men like the men in Gibeah shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, he's saying this to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now listen, God is saying this to David about Solomon, but it's not just about Solomon, is it? And the reason why we know it's not just about Solomon is because the last phrase I will establish the throne of his kingdom, what? Forever. Solomon didn't reign forever. None of those kings reign forever. There is only one king whose throne and whose name will reign forever. There's only one king who can cause his people to dwell in their place and to be disturbed no more, to not be affected by the violence around them. There's only one king that can truly give us the rest that we need from all of our enemies, both the enemies outside of us and the enemies inside of us. Jesus is the king who provides for us a sure and certain way to approach God. Jesus is the king who left his throne and allowed himself to be devalued, right? First, Jesus was, so to speak, humanized. And then on the cross, he was dehumanized so that he could rescue and rule over our hearts and to make us fully human. Jesus is the king who lived a sinless life in your place and became the worst of your sins in your place. And Jesus is the king who unites in his kingdom, who unites, unites us in his kingdom for his mission to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is the king that we need and his throne and his kingdom will reign forever.